this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is your new episode with Tor Bear from Enigma. Enigma is building a privacy layer for the decentralized web. First researched at MIT, Enigma's network of secret nodes can perform computations over encrypted data at scale without ever exposing the raw data itself. We talked about what they're doing in Enigma. We talked about this notion that blockchains are bad at privacy by design. And so Enigma is building the first scalable platform for decentralized applications that can utilize sensitive or private data as inputs. We also talked about this difference that they wrote about between computational and transactional. And we talked about zero-knowledge proofs again. We've been talking a lot about that on the show. And we talked about their governance procedures and also their use cases. And in many cases, Enigma is also talking to DEXs, marketplaces, gamings. And so there's a lot of ways that they can potentially be used. It's a great conversation. Tor is really, really insightful. And I like what the guys are doing there. So remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. And I also apologize. I am losing my voice. So nothing is investment advice on base layer. And remember um, to reach out if you are a new project or someone that was interested in potentially looking at coming on base layer to talk about your project or if you're an investor about your investment thesis. And we'll be having the conversation with Tor right after this. Take care. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Tor Bear with us from Enigma. How are you, Tor? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Great. Um, so this is a really interesting conversation because Enigma has been a, a project I've been hearing a lot about um, and building a privacy layer for the decentralized web. We're going to talk a lot about that. There are components uh, in this story. Um, there are things um, called secret nodes that we're going to talk about. And this is a project I think a lot of folks should know about. Um, and so came out of, if, as far as I understood, it came out of MIT and uh, obviously a very prestigious institution uh, that many people know about. So Tor, if you could you know, share a little bit about yourself and uh, give us a high level about Enigma, and then we'll dig into a little bit more about what you guys are doing there. Sure. So my name is Tor. I'm the head of growth at Enigma. Uh, I was at MIT when uh, Enigma started. It started as research by our CEO, Guy Ziskind, uh, who's a privacy expert and also a decentralization expert and expert in decentralized technologies. Uh, and what Enigma is doing is, like you said, we're, we're trying to secure the decentralized web. You know, We see the progression towards decentralized applications and unstoppable smart contracts as like a huge advancement in terms of what this is going to mean for individuals as well as institutions around the world. Um, but we also see that there's a huge shortcoming for all these applications and smart contracts, which is that they really can't use private or sensitive data effectively. They're either exposing that data uh, by putting it on a blockchain or they're you know using centralized solutions to secure it and compute over it. Um, which, in our opinion, is is not an improvement over the status quo. So Enigma's whole mission is to accelerate the global adoption of decentralized technologies. And we do that by focusing on 
privacy solutions, scalability solutions, and usability solutions. And sometimes those are all the same solution. Uh, so our first thing that we're building at Enigma is a protocol for secure computation that is a solution for privacy and scalability and also for usability. And if if you know we're not attacking these huge problems at the foundational levels of the technology, then I, I don't think we're going to see the level of adoption that a lot of people in the space would like to see. But if we can solve it, I think that this is the next revolution. And I, I think a lot of people feel the same. And so... We've had a lot of people on recently. We had Munib, we had Uri from Blocks, uh, Blocks Route. We've had you know Silvio from Algorand, kind of talking about different protocols and scalability issues. Um, and so you know, I would love to initially kind of get your opinion. You know, there's this notion of you know you you, you talk about privacy a bunch, um, and you guys have a great uh, blog that you guys use a lot. And you talked about transactional and computational uh, privacy. And also as it relates to scale, there's this idea of the trilemma that I think uh, Vitalik and others mm -hmm. have discussed. And so, you know, do you have to give up something to get you know, more decentralization? Do you have to give up decentralization to get more scalability and speed? You know, so we'd love to kind of get your opinion on, you know, what Enigma is doing and, you know, in terms of this privacy layer, you talk about, you know, as I said, the difference between transactional and computational privacy. Talk to us about what that means to you guys there. So usually when you're hearing about privacy in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space, what you're hearing about is transactional privacy. And it's usually like somebody wants to send some digital asset to somebody else. Uh, but they want to obscure something about this transaction. They either want to do it anonymously or they want the amounts to be hidden or the recipient to be hidden. You know, there, there's something about this transaction you're trying to protect. And, you know, that's a lot of what like Zcash or Monero tries to do. And there's all these different privacy technologies that you can use to achieve this. Uh, but in Enigma, we're thinking beyond transactional. A transaction to us is just one specific type of computation. And what we want to enable is other types of computations. Uh, that that to us is like where you get from like blockchains can be used as like an accounting ledger to blockchains can be used as a foundation for a decentralized internet. Uh, so we're really the, I think we were probably the first project to really be thinking about this because we started in 2015. As I mentioned, our CEO guy was the one who wrote the first white paper. These white papers now, you know, at the time, they got a little bit of attention. There was a little bit of press coverage even, but there wasn't the kind of attention there is now. Now those papers that he's written together have, I think, over 700 citations because people have come to realize that you cannot, you know, you can't build these decentralized platforms and just not have some kind of privacy solution for computations. So what we do is Enigma is the computational layer. And we use blockchain as a verification layer. That's where you know you would commit the result of a computation and, and you would update the state of the network. But the computations are actually done on Enigma's network, not on like the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and that's why we say like we can be a privacy solution because we're protecting the data in use. Data is encrypted at all times on the Enigma network, even as the computations are being done. It's also a scalability solution because the computations are not being done on the blockchain itself. It's being done on our computational network. And we also say that we're a usability solution because when you look at different kinds of decentralized applications, a lot of the time their usability is restricted by the fact that they can't scale or they have no privacy. So, you know, to 
just like one example at random for a decentralized exchange. If you want to have a functional decentralized exchange that, you know, you, you open up these attack vectors such as like front running uh, if you try to do everything on chain uh, or and, and let the miners handle it. What we do is we we can allow you to send the orders through the Enigma network and match them on Enigma's network and we preserve privacy. And this increases usability for users because now you, you've closed off that attack vector. You're, you're not, by introducing a privacy solution, you've made the application more usable. You've made it functional. Uh, so anyway, that's just one example of like, computational privacy like the computation being performed there would be say order matching and that goes beyond just like i want to anonymously send somebody some amount of something all right i hope you don't mind i want to get a little philosophical here and maybe dig into that a little bit more so enigma being there you know kind of you mentioned the data you know the computations are let me make let me make sure i have that right the computations are done on-chain or they're done through Enigma? Computations are done on Enigma's network. They're not done on Ethereum. Right. Okay. And so what layer of data goes into that is that there's no user data, correct? Where? On on Enigma's network? Right. The data that you could send through our network is is encrypted. Like you, you would use Enigma to encrypt the data and then it goes onto Enigma's network where the nodes in the network perform computations on the encrypted data without mm-hmm. ever revealing the data to the node itself. And just out of curiosity, because this is where I wanted to go, do you feel that there's any layer of, and I know this is not a perfect world, but do you feel that there's any layer of centralization in that process? I think that this idea of like a perfectly decentralized system Mm-hmm. is really challenging to achieve and not even something that's necessarily beneficial to achieve. So the way that I describe it is that what we're trying to do with the decentralization movement is we're not trying to like perfectly decentralize everything because obviously something like Bitcoin isn't remotely perfectly decentralized right. between you know mining pools and everything else. What we're trying to do is give choice to users and developers where before they wouldn't have a choice. So let's look at how centralized applications work today. You know, something like Facebook. There, there really isn't a good alternative to this. The reason nobody quits Facebook is not because they're not really truly upset about their privacy uh, being exploited. The reason is because there's no good alternative. Centralized systems are actually really good for, you know, scaling social networks. But what if, you know, you could achieve that kind of scale but still protect privacy? And, and you go to now this idea of, like, don't be evil versus can't be evil. Decentralized technologies are supposed to like the, the idea is they're supposed to ma- help you choose who to trust. I don't want to have to trust Facebook with my data ever, but I do trust them to build really good products that help me connect with people all around the world. I just don't also want them to be able to put all their data in a centralized database that a hacker can get to or make Facebook the company responsible for figuring out like who should have access to that data. I would much rather somebody build a decentralized social network on top of Enigma knowing that what Enigma allows you to do is, you know, protect the data at all times. Like the the data would come into Enigma's network and instead of just sitting around in like Amazon web services or something, like the computations are done on our network, the results of the computation is committed back onto, you know, whatever blockchain. And, you know, the application can then update as a result. But then, you know, there's no central company that ever holds on to the data that was being used by this application. To me, that's just increasing trust, you know, 
in the product without having to increase trust in some kind of centralized organization. That that's where it comes down to to me. I, I don't think you can ever build a perfectly decentralized system uh, that's is still functional and usable. I just don't think that's possible. So one of the areas we, we obviously we just talked initially about privacy and about this privacy layer. Um, I noticed you guys discussed or you mentioned that blockchains are bad by design at privacy. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and so, you know, they, the marketing, if you will, of blockchain has been, you know, this way of, you know, pseudonymous, anonymous, uh, transmission of data, of assets, uh, of information. But it sounds like in, in the opinions of what you guys are, are, are over there that, you know, they are actually bad by design. And can you just, can you kind of opine a little bit more about that or give us, you know, give the listeners a little bit yeah. more of an understanding of what that means or why that is? Yeah, there's a big difference between something being permissionless and something being private. And I, I think when you look at those two words, it's pretty self-evident. Something that is permissionless, you know, seems like it would be public, not private by nature. Blockchains are permissionless. That's the idea. Uh, you know, you don't like have to like KYC or like you don't have to do know your customer stuff to like start using a blockchain. You know, there it's the idea is that it's a it's a more democratic solution for the kinds of applications and solutions that they're enabling. Like it's it's allowing more individuals to participate in the system and you're eliminating centralized bottlenecks or centralized sources of trust. That's what blockchains are really good for. They're good at like achieving uh, some sort of consensus amongst distributed actors, but they are bad at privacy. They were not designed to be good at protecting data. They were designed to be auditable. In fact, you know, so that, you know, a bunch of miners serving as accountants, right. All over the world can update a distributed ledger. They weren't supposed to be protecting the privacy of the data that was on that ledger. If you want that, if you want to extend blockchains and be able to build like smart contracts, and decentralized applications, then you need a privacy solution. You can't just say, you know, we have a blockchain, so we're done. That's not what blockchains were supposed to be used for. Blockchains were supposed to be for like these transactional ledgers. That's, you know, what Bitcoin was. Uh, it, it's not this, you know, you have to build other stuff to make it do that. And Enigma is that other stuff. It's, it's that missing piece that is going to allow uh, decentralized applications and smart contracts to actually become useful and solve new kinds of problems. If you don't have that, then you you don't have much. We 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 like to say it. It's it's a little harsh, but you know we kind of say that like without privacy solutions, smart contracts are useless. Hmm. So, you know, there could be I could see the big problem with mass adoption, especially at the corporate enterprise level, has been you know having utilization of blockchains, you know, public blockchains, and having, you know, kind of trade secrets out there, having all sorts of things that they don't want necessarily out there. But it sounds like, you know, potentially using Enigma could be a solve for that. Um, so we'll talk more about that in terms of use cases that you guys are, are seeing over there. But this idea of the secret node, um, you know, it sounds like some sort of a iteration of a keep or zero knowledge proof or some sort of a container where, you know, there's information that can't necessarily be, you know, distributed out unless someone else has, you know, another type of verified key or something of that nature. What is the secret node? Can you kind of break it down for us a little bit more? 
Yeah. So secret nodes are the backbone of Enigma's network. And so an individual secret node is, you know, it, it's a computer essentially in Enigma's network that is performing these computations. And what makes it a secret node uh, is the idea that it can't see the data that it is performing computations on. It's it's secret even from the node itself. And that's a really powerful idea uh, in terms of, like we said, like reducing this kind of trust that you need to have. The data is encrypted at all times in Enigma's network, and and the the secret node itself is no exception. If you run uh, a secret node, then you are now part of a network of other secret nodes. You're all performing these computations, which are you know distributed around our network. You you're selected randomly to perform a computation in the network. Um, it, it's actually more similar to something it's sometimes when I hear about how other projects in the space are constructed and they talk about their miners and they talk about their validators. I actually think that I like to use examples from outside the blockchain space when I, when I try to describe how this works because there's um, the Tor network, uh, you know, the onion routing network Mm -hmm. and the way that they do things is with relayers. And again, it's the idea that you have these connected nodes in a network and each of these nodes is now like helping relay traffic around the internet. That's a decentralized system where like each node in the network is, you know, by, by having a decentralized network, you're increasing dramatically the utility and the security of the network. And that's kind of how it works for Enigma as well. The more nodes, the more secret nodes that we have in our network behaving honestly and performing computations, the stronger the network is, the more secure it can be. Uh, the more computations it can run, and so on and so forth. So let's talk a little bit more there. So behaving honestly and you know performing their computations at the node level, how are mm-hmm. nodes selected in your system? So it this relates back to how our native token works in our system. So Enigma's network has a native token called ENG. And when you stake ENG, and run a secret node, your likelihood of being selected for a computation is proportional to your stake in the network. So Enigma operates as, you know, essentially a proof of stake network. And the more ENG that you're staking, the greater your chance of selection. That means the more computations you're going to run. Computations in Enigma's network are compensated with ENG as well. So this is very similar to how gas works on Ethereum's network. And if you are the node performing the computation, you receive that computational fee for that computation. And that fee is denominated in ENG. So you're staking ENG, you're being selected for computations based on that stake, you're receiving the fees for those computations. And obviously, the more computations you're doing, the more fees, in, in theory, you're going to be receiving. One of the things that we've been, I've been hearing more and I've been talking to other people about is the economics of, of staking and whether they mm-hmm. are economic. You know, there, you know, obviously there is a cost to be a staker on your network and other networks um, and the economics at play. Is it really, you know, at a point in time right now where someone who could be listening to us in Lithuania and I do have a few listeners out there, apparently. Um, awesome. yeah, yeah, I know. Um, you know, who may not necessarily have a ton of fiat, but wants to participate, you know, loves what you guys are doing there or loves another, you know, kind of proof of state network, but mm-hmm. doesn't have a huge disposable income. 
is it, you know, are we or have you guys looked or thought about kind of the economics and, you know, the ability for people and all around the world to really participate in the network that way? Yeah, ultimately, there we are a permissionless network, and anybody can run a secret node. That said, there is a minimum stake in the network, which is one way of ensuring that like secret nodes actually have skin in the game. Right. So there, there is a minimum threshold for ENG that needs to be staked by a secret node in order to be participating in the network. But it's permissionless. Anybody could run a node provided that they have that stake. You're, you're making a, a good point, which is that, you know, is this another aspect of sending centralization of a network when you're saying, okay, uh, you know, you, there has to be a minimum threshold to participate. So now only people who are well off enough to afford a note are going to participate. And on the one hand, that's a centralizing feature. But on the other hand, it's it's sort of necessary if you want the network to be usable. And, and we say all the time, right, we're focused on usability. If anybody can run a node and they don't have to, you know, stake anything against it, uh, you lose a lot of the incentive to operate your node honestly, and the network loses its security, it loses its integrity. Mm-hmm. And when you're designing these networks, when you're designing these network economics, you constantly have to be thinking, you know, what's in it for the individual who's operating a node, but you also think about like what's in it for the network. You can design a network that's extremely attractive for somebody to run a node in. And that's what a lot of networks do is they create very attractive economics. They attract a lot of node runners and and they'll operate based on that. But the networks, then the network itself has no utility. No one trusts it enough to build on it. Nobody trusts it enough to, you know, uh, transmit value on it, right? Like that's what we're trying to avoid. You know, we, we have to exist at that balance where it makes sense for the people participating in securing the network, but it also makes sense for the people who would be developing on it and relying on it. So the way that we approach this stuff and the way that a lot of good projects do it is this idea of sort of like progressive decentralization of the network. And you start early with a smaller network of nodes, but still meaningful enough that it's decentralized and, and it's being tested at scale. And then over time, you know, you reduce, let's say, the minimum stake that you would need to run a node. Let's say it falls from 25,000 ENG then to like 20,000 ENG and then lower and lower. You're reducing the barrier to participation over time. And that helps decentralize the network. But what you don't do is you start from day one with so many nodes that it's actually a threat to the stability of the network itself. If you do that, you know you haven't really built a, a sustainable network. And, and inherent to these ideas of privacy and scalability and usability is really that key theme of sustainability. The idea that the network that we build, we still want to be operational in a decade or two decades time or even beyond. If you're not thinking on those timescales, you're you're not going to design your network right. That is such an interesting and intelligent way to think about it that I had not really thought about before. And I'm, I thank you for bringing that up because you're right. Because when you look at even you know more in traditional venture, when you have a startup and they're building a widget, and initially that widget can cost you know a lot more than it really you know is meant to be, but you have to go through a run. You have to obviously you know build a, a supply chain. You have to obviously get pent up demand. And then once you do, and then you can start obviously going to scale and then you obviously can drive down the costs. It makes a lot of sense. And I haven't really looked at it from that perspective. So thank you for that. Cause that really does make a lot of sense. Um, of course. And so the other, you know, some other features um, that you guys talk about. So 
you know, and I quote, our protocol breaks up sensitive data and distributes it in encrypted form across nodes on the Enigma network. To me, that sounds like a form of sharding. Can you tell me if, what that is and if that's right? Yeah, I mean, again, this is this is a kind of scalability solution, right? We don't need every node in the Enigma network performing every computation. So certain nodes in the network are going to be doing computations and others won't. This is part of the random selection process. And as our protocol develops, you know, in the early iterations of our network, we had it very simply. You know, this is where we are now where, you know, a single node is going to do a single computation. And, you know, you, that's how we reached like a simple consensus. But longer term, you know, we can introduce more consensus elements to the network where like multiple nodes will be performing computations, the same computation and forming consensus on that computation. Uh, it's, it's an evolution uh, it, it's very, as you know, sharding is kind of an open issue in this space and the way you solve this scalability issue is sort of an open question. Um, we're focusing on the privacy element for, for starters, for sure, because we know that that is the, that is the differentiator for us. We, we've thought a lot about those solutions and there's a lot of really great research being done on sharding and on consensus mechanisms that we intend to contribute to, but we also intend to benefit from and integrate it into the protocol. So talking about scalability again, just going back to that, because it's been a conversation point over the last few months on the show. And so not to say that you guys have to have a certain number or things that you guys have been able to, uh, you know, obviously compute, but um, you, you mentioned solving for scalability a lot. And you say that, you know, a number of times. And so with Bitcoin at three TPS and, you know, Ethereum is somewhere in the range of seven or eight TPS, maybe give or take. Um, right. you know, what is, you know, a lot of people always try to come up with a benchmark. You always look for relative kind of, you know, correlations and, and relative kind of, uh, comparisons to what we see traditionally. And the one that's always come up has been Visa with the 20,000 TPS. And obviously I, I don't think that that's correct. And Muneeb was on the show a few weeks ago when we were talking about how with Bitcoin, you know, as that it's more programmable money. You know, something on the lines of, you know, a credit card transaction or TPS would be a little bit more of a benchmark and versus something like Ethereum, which is much more of a utility, which is not necessarily working on transactions per second, like a credit card would have a completely different benchmark. What are you guys, right. you know, what are you guys thinking about in terms of, you know, what is, you know, do you look at transactions per second as your metric and what are kind of benchmarks do you use to say that this thing is really performant? It's a good question. I mean, we're we're certainly closer to Ethereum than we are to Bitcoin in terms of the purpose of Enigma. You know, it's, it is computational, not transactional. And when I, when people ask me about like something like TPS, what I usually say is, you know, any metric that you can come up with, you know, is something that people are going to try to game. And if you look at a lot of blockchain networks that, you know, they want to be measured by transactions per second because they've optimized for it at the, you know, at the expense of something like decentralization or security. But if TPS is all that anybody cares about and all that they measure against, and you can say, I've got 10 times more transactions per second than the other guy, suddenly you've created an incentive for networks to instead optimize for that. And then you lose all the benefits that you were supposed to be gaining with blockchains and decentralization. If we're saying that the best way to up your TPS is to centralize and to reduce security, then, you know, we're back where we started. Like, what what is the point? Then it's just a marketing exercise. 
So rather than focus on, you know, these kind of like performance metrics, you know, we're not at the stage of the industry where we should really be thinking about performance metrics. We need to be thinking about fundamentally, what are the fundamental technologies that are going to support this thing as we attempt to scale it? And when we think about our benchmarks, a lot of our benchmarks aren't around like TPS and and things like that, where it's like, this is, you know, scalable and we're going to improve it 10% all the time, right? We're thinking about like more zero to one kind of metrics, like how do we get from we don't have a network launched to the first 50 nodes in our network are live to the first thousand nodes in our network are live? And to us, I would say like those are our big benchmarks, like how many nodes are performing in the network, how much ENG would be staked in the network, how many fees are being paid for computations in the network. Like it really comes down to usage. Uh, I, I think that usage is 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 something that is, you know, you, you can you can fake it in the sense that like bots can be paying all your fees on your network, like some major blockchains that I won't get into, but it's still usage. It costs somebody money somewhere to do it. And that's like a much stronger signal than just saying like, Oh, my network can do this. Well, if your network can do it and nobody uses it, it doesn't matter. You know, you can have infinite TPS, but if nobody actually wants to use your network for anything, to me, that's a useless metric. So we, we concentrate all our met our, all of our benchmarks, all of our, all of our ideas around that are, are definitely just around usage. Mm-hmm. And talk to us a little bit about, you know, kind of one of the other things that I have a lot of people talk about is governance. Um, you know, different proof of stake mm-hmm. systems have different governance systems. And that seems to be another hotbed topic amongst those that are watching the space. Can you talk to us a little bit about your governance structure? Yeah, there's a lot of projects that are doing experiments and I call them experiments, right? With on-chain governance. And, you know, the governance is sort of baked into the network where if you're a token holder, you can vote on certain proposals and this and this and this. And I look at that and, you know, we've seen some issues. First is like participation rates. You know, how often are people actually utilizing their ability to vote on changes that would be made for a network? And then it's, you know, is it fair? Are these the people who should be voting on the changes in the network versus like, other stakeholders in the network who may not be token holders, but like say you're developing on top of a protocol, do you get a vote in that governance? And when I, so when I look at governance, I see a lot more open questions than I see answers. And if you're baking on-chain governance at early stages into the ground floor of your protocol, you're opening up more attack vectors than you are like solving problems for users. To me, like on-chain governance really does challenge usability. Uh, so we don't we don't really have on-chain governance in this early iteration of the network. As like an ENG token holder who doesn't grant you some sort of voting rights over proposals that are going to be accepted or denied. When we think about governance, we're actually thinking more about like what are the applications for Enigma, the network, in other people's governance applications and solutions. Because for example, something you can do with Enigma is you can do secret voting. So say you submit uh, encrypted votes to Enigma's network, the network can actually count, you know, it can secretly, securely tally those votes. You can know the outcome of the votes, but now you haven't, you know, revealed who voted for what. You can just like, you can know that the outcome of the vote was what it was. This has a ton of applications for governance for, you know, Ethereum-based applications where they, you know, if right now all of your voting has to be done on chain, you open up things like bribery attacks and things like that. Uh, or or maybe there's like front running for voting if you have to do the voting on chain, like you can see how other people are voting before you cast your own vote. 
you know, we're, we're trying to solve those problems. Like we want on-chain governance to be usable. That's why we're building Enigma. But because Enigma hadn't existed up until this point, we can't, we, we are not able to use the governance solutions that Enigma enables to power our own protocol. Does that make sense? Like yeah. If, if we can build technologies like Enigma, then I have a much stronger belief in the utility and usability of on-chain governance. And where we stand today, I, I am still a skeptic and I have huge respect for the projects that are expending, the, the, sorry, that are experimenting with on-chain governance, to me, it's just still an open problem. Hmm. It's uh, we've had a few people that have been on the show that have been been experimenting with it too, and that's why it's an interesting. You know, one of the you know, as I said, one of the areas that I always ask people that come on is specifically about that uh, how you actually get a network and, and you get the. The, the 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 entities the the stakers in a network to actually you know all kind of get into an alignment and to agree on a certain way of going so it, it is something that we'll obviously continue to you know kind of expand on and we'll find out more as we go you know one of the as i mentioned at the top we also talked about use cases and i see you guys mentioned that there's a collaboration with numerous projects and individuals looking to explore use cases for enigma such as dexes marketplaces and gaming so can you tell us a little bit you know kind of what that is looking like what those collaborations uh kind of entail and you know a little bit more about you know, what your you, the use cases are yeah when we when we think about use cases uh, we have two. We have two ways of approaching it. We we have verticals where we think about like here are the industries and application types where we think Enigma can have an impact because we know that these types of applications, we know that these industries are going to require privacy solutions to be you know to have meaningful applications built. Uh, on the other side is building blocks, and the building blocks are more just like how are these specific implementations of Enigma going to look and how can they be generalized uh, across different verticals? So one example that I just gave is something like secret voting. So secret voting is a building block. Something like governance is more of a vertical, right? So you can imagine all kinds of different applications that are going to require some kind of governance element, and those can all be empowered by something like secret voting. But you can generalize secret voting into like a different building block like secret auctions, right? So it's the same sort of thing where you can't see the other participants and their bids, uh, but now you can know the result of the auction was correct without being able to see any single participant's bid. Uh, that has applications, you know, for something like maybe a, a trading or maybe for like non-fungible tokens, like you're auctioning off assets, but maybe for decentralized ad servers as well. Cause you know, that's how things work today. There's, there's auctions done programmatically. So that single building block of secret auctions now has tons of applications across different verticals for decentralized applications. That's that's really how we're approaching it, right? So you can see how something like gaming, something like trading, something like marketplaces, these are all verticals that are being enabled by the the little building blocks that utilize the ability to do computations over encrypted data. And could people start using it today? Give us a kind of where is it in the maturation of, you know, getting the project going? Are you guys moving from testnet to mainnet? I know you had some big news this week too, so if you want to share that, go ahead. Sure. So the big news uh, from this week, I don't know when this is going to air, but the big news, I suppose, from early June, I'll say, 
is that uh, we've launched the developer testnet, the testnet developer release of Discovery, which is the first iteration of our protocol. And the reason that's such a huge deal for us and why we've been like building the last year plus toward that moment is now developers can start building their own, we're calling them secret contracts. Secret contracts are the are the smart contracts on Enigma that are privacy preserving contracts. So now if you're a developer who's working on something, like you're thinking of building some sort of uh, privacy enabled application, like a dead man switch, or you're trying to build a decentralized exchange or a data marketplace, now you can go pick up our documentation, pick up our walkthroughs, start building these applications for yourself. And the next step is that we're going to be launching the network first on Ethereum testnet and then on Ethereum mainnet. The, we were built to be this version of the protocol completely interoperable with Ethereum. And Ethereum has like the biggest developer community by, by far uh, inside the decentralization space, which is why we've chose to focus on Ethereum. And now Ethereum developers can really pick up our protocol, start coding secret contracts. And when we're live on mainnet, on Ethereum mainnet, you will, those are the same contracts you're going to be able to deploy. You're not really going to need to make any changes to what you're building now to have these be ready to go when Enigma is actually live on mainnet. That's why it's really exciting for us because our partners can look at what we've built, know that they can build on this. And know that when we go live on mainnet, you know, we'll be able to support them immediately. It's it's not as good as being live on mainnet already. But what it does do is it gives our partners and, and collaborators time to start building their applications. And that takes time anyways. And we're hoping by the time that they've actually integrated Enigma into their own solutions and their own applications, everything's going to be live, we'll be ready to go, and the network's going to launch with usage right away. One of the things that we didn't necessarily talk about, but one of the things that's interesting is that in some of the other projects that I've spoken to on the show, there's been, like we had Alex from Near, and the idea of using JavaScript or TypeScript instead of Solidity. Uh, Solidity has been something that a lot of developers around the world have been slow to kind of adopt to. Um, for all purposes of what you're talking about, do devs have to be using Solidity? What language, uh, what kind of programming language uh, is used? Uh, secret contracts are written in Rust. Uh, and we have a long explanation for why we've chosen to structure Enigma the way that we have for using Rust for secret contracts and having Wasm, the WebAssembly compatibility. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not something I can break down in a single podcast, but we do write about it a lot on the Enigma blog. We have our developer team. They go there. They walk through all the strengths of the solutions we've chosen to write. Uh and uh, we acknowledge some of the things that make it more difficult. Like not everybody already is familiar with Rust. We just we feel very strongly that this is what's future proofing Enigma. Like the way we've structured the network is we're building for where we think the space is going, not just where it's been. Right. Uh, and if you're curious about Rust and all these other you know things that are elements of our protocol, we do have very detailed walkthroughs on our blog already. So I, I think that based on the feedback we've gotten from developers so far, they they're very excited about the choices we've made in the network. I am not the most technical person on our team, uh, and even I have you know enjoyed starting to dig into it myself. So yeah, I, I, I I'm I'm pretty excited. I don't know. I, is that coming across enough? I feel like I've just kind of <laughs> talked about like how things are kind of cool and how we can kind of solve things, but like I'm genuinely super thrilled that we launched this and that people can start building right now. 
That's good. You know, obviously, you know, we've gone through the proverbial crypto winter. And during that time when the market price and the market cap and everything that really is not reflective, obviously, was capitulating. There were, you know, teams and projects like yours that were building and were actually getting ready to start launching. So it fills into that narrative that even during, you know, when the price was going down that, you know, there were, you know, teams like yours that were actually out there building and getting ready to do uh, kind of launch. So it is it is something, uh, a really good narrative. And so the last things that we like to do on the show with guests is getting into your head a little bit more. Um, and no, that doesn't mean that we're going to like crack your cranium open and see what's in there, but it's more about like what you're putting in your brain. And two of the things that we like to ask people is what kind of music they listen to or what they enjoy. Um, and then also what they're reading and those, for those that don't know, well, they can't see because we're talking uh, vis-a-vis Skype. Tor has an amazing picture of an electric keyboard that he's holding, I think, or something of that nature. So immediately, it's I, a guitar. It's a guitar. Yeah. That's right. So immediately, I wanted to ask Tor what his music preference was because it's uh, obviously <laughs> it's right there in front of me. So you know, if you could tell us what music you listen to, what gets you going, and then also if you've read anything recently that kind of inspires you, or it could be crypto related, it could be sci-fi, whatever, anything like that. Yeah, I've actually been a musician my whole life. And and part of how I got excited about blockchain in the first place was thinking that blockchain could be a solution for digital rights management, especially in the music space. And I I did at one point during my MBA, uh, an internship at Spotify. And while I was there, I was I was exploring this use case. And then I decided that blockchain actually had a ton of potential, but that the music industry was super broken. So uh, I'm still excited about blockchain, less excited about how the music industry actually works. It's it's going to be a couple decades until it, it gets its act together. Um, but, you know, even though I'm not a professional musician, I'm still writing. I'm still performing on occasion. Uh, the photo on my Skype is from a few years ago, um, but I still have that guitar. I'll break it out on occasion. It's a great picture. So, you know, for those that don't know, it is a great picture. <laughs> Well, you'll just have to take his word for it. In terms of what I'm listening to, uh, I listen to. I actually grew up listening to like a lot of uh, trance music and techno when I was like 13 or 14. So I still like a lot of electronic stuff. Really? Um, but I actually, yeah. But I actually, I, I don't know. I'm kind of eclectic. I really like movie soundtracks. I used to write soundtracks when I was in college. Uh, as a way to make some side cash, uh, I listen to a lot of folk music because I like songwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I will occasionally listen to I don't know, man. My Discover Weekly is pretty good. I still use Spotify every single day, so I, I usually just kind of like browse through new releases and things like that. And the one thing I'll say is that I I just like good music. I I just don't like bad music, and I don't like Taylor Swift. <laughs> Well, hopefully, I don't know if Taylor listens to uh, crypto. Taylor, if you're listening, I'm not sorry. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'll ask you because I actually used to be a DJ back in the day, and a lot. Some people know about the DJ days, but um, I also had an affinity for all things electronic. So, do you have a favorite DJ or any of that, or or track or something that comes to mind? I like Tiesto, and I miss Avicii. Uh, Yes. Yes, that is, uh, that is, yeah, Tim. Uh, and on that note, yeah, it is. And, um, 
on that note, hopefully we can kind of rebound and get people excited again. And so where can people find out more about Enigma? Where can, you know, as I mentioned before, you guys write a lot, which is fantastic because we need more yeah. content out there. So if you wanted to point to any people that were listening, where can they find out more about Enigma and, and you know, get in contact with you? So the website is enigma.co. The blog is blog.enigma.co. The Twitter is Enigma MPC. Uh, we tweet a lot. We write a lot. I say we. A lot of the a lot of the tweeting is me. A lot of the writing is our entire team. You know, the developers will write a lot about the protocol itself and the walkthroughs. I write a little bit of the, you know, usual updates around like what we're building, what we're doing. Occasionally, I will live stream on Twitter, which is the thing we started doing recently, just because we're trying to find more ways to increase transparency between the day to day for the core team and like the community of developers and node runners that are following the project. So uh, we also have something really cool called the collective uh, where a bunch of community members, if, if you're interested in like educating people about privacy and decentralization, like we have a massive community of volunteers. I, I think it's like 50 plus around the world now that work directly with our core team to build educational materials or work on things for Enigma, do development work with the protocol that's super cool. You can read about it on our blog. I also have my own podcast with Enigma. It's called Decentralize This. It's, uh, you know, it's it's uh, not as frequent as it used to be. We used to do it weekly. Now it's a little less. But yeah, uh, we, again, same as you're doing, man. We're, we're just trying to get people on to the show who are serious builders who want to talk about what they've built. Uh, and we've had a lot of great guests. But so have you. I've, I've really enjoyed going through and seeing some of the old episodes that you've put together. And I, from what I can see, you've got a lot of really amazing guests coming up. That's right. And uh, I'm very happy to support other people's podcasts on this show that are obviously continuing to provide education and to provide learnings about what's happening out there. You know, there's this idea that this is all very complex and ambiguous. And yes, it is complex. And yes, there's a lot of hard things that are trying to be solved. But it doesn't, you know, it just takes a little bit of an, a, a, an interest and some questions, and then you can find a whole host of things. You know, as, I, as you mentioned, Tori, you guys have a great podcast, too. Um, and so I would definitely check out uh, their blog. As I said, they write really well, and they write for people that are technical and not as technical. So there's a lot of good learnings there, too. This was Tor Bear at Enigma, a project you should check out and reach out to them on their website, and on their Twitter. And uh, hopefully in a few months, we'll come back to you guys and see how the progress is going with Enigma. Thanks, Tor. Thanks for having me, man. It was a pleasure. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter. Arca at Arca or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.